The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, May 8th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Maybe Trump wants the House to impeach him. Maybe he's itching for a fight. It's been widely suspected and reported. Rich Lowry, writing in Politico, says, Impeachment? This is the fight Trump wants. It's hard to imagine any potential target of impeachment in Anglo-American history relishing the fight more than Trump. Anglo-American history. So Lord Palmerstalt? Nancy Pelosi just came out and said it the other day. Don't tell anybody I told you this. <laughs> Trump, I use his name, okay. Trump is goading us to impeach him. All right, two things. If he wants impeachment so much, maybe he'd let Don McGahn testify or release his taxes or let the Mueller report be handed over unredacted. Is refusing to comply with Congress's desires to hear from the man who knows so many damaging secrets a real strategy for staving off impeachment? And if he wants impeachment, it seems like he could easily get impeachment. One tweet. Everyone who says the phrase rigged witch hunt at the front desk gets 10% off their stay at the Trump Hotel. I mean, it is not hard for a guy in his position to inspire impeachment proceedings if that's what he really wants. But the other point is that even if he wants it, does that mean he's right? As a rule of thumb, I'm going to say no. Trump is an unclever person and a poor strategist. He has some good political instincts, but that's because he has no deep political knowledge. So it's all instincts. I mean, he's very good at getting attention. He's very good at selecting a weakness and riling a person up, but he's a poor strategist. Do you think his first three travel ban losses were good strategy? Did he get anything from them? Did he say, I own the shutdown and then see that statement hurt his popularity and then cave because he's a good strategist? Did he emphasize the caravan and separating families at the border as his primary midterm strategy only to see his party lose the house in overwhelming fashion? Is that good strategy? He is great at getting attention. He's pretty good at making his base happy. Tautology. You know, there is base. That's who they are, the people who like Trump. But especially in dealing with Congress, he has shown time and time again not to have a real clue about what's going on. Now, I realize I made two somewhat contradictory cases that Trump really doesn't want impeachment and that he does but shouldn't. And I reconcile them by saying two words, Donald Trump. If there is one man who is drawn to a fight he should not have, that man is Donald Trump. And let's also think about the fact that he was drawn to the political fight of his life and running for president, and he did win that. Yes, but did he want to win the presidency? Was that actually his strategy? In fact, him being president, that itself might be the ultimate example of Trump being a bad political strategist. On the show today, I spiel about mistakes, 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 mistakes I made. I argue with myself. Five years of that. But first, does it seem like I do this thing, this here thing, alone? Well, if it does seem that way, that is due to the skill of the very people whose job it is to make it seem that way. They're magical and invisible audio elves who are known as producers in the lexicon of podcasting. So what I did was assemble each and every producer that just has ever had and just let them hold forth, tell some tales, have at it. 
I probably should have gotten non-disclosures beforehand, but I did not. Now, also, I want to tell you this. When you hear this, I will hear this. I have no idea what these people are going to say, even though I recorded some questions as prompts. On to that, the GIST Producer Roundtable. Hey, so this is the just fifth anniversary week. We're very excited to be celebrating that. And so one of the things we're doing is a producer's roundtable of current and former producers of the gist getting together and discussing what it's like to make the show that we put out every day. So with me are just founding producer Andrea Salenzi. Hello. And uh, former gist producer Chris Barube. Hello. And uh, current gist producer Pierre Bianame. Hello. And of, and of course me, current just producer Daniel Schrader. Where's Mary? Mary is currently working on the other daily show at Slate, What Next? But she will be chiming in a bit later to some answers to these questions as well. Anyway, I would love to know from you, Andrea, what it was like to start the gist, to launch it, to create it with Mike. Oh, you probably haven't heard the story. No. Chris and I were out to dinner once. <laughs> yeah, you can say it. It's fine. It was our friend Joanna's birthday. And he was really excited because he was going to apply for a job in podcasting with this guy, Mike Pesca. And I was like at the point where I just finished my cover letter and I was getting ready to send it all in. So we both were up for the same job. We were indeed. Yeah. Andrea and I were the two finalists to be the first just producer. The idea of a full-time job in podcasting was just so like coveted and hard to come by. And this felt like such an innovative model. And I was I was excited by the idea that we could start small and then grow. So I think we piloted the show for about a week where we would make fake gists and we'd send them around to the Slate staffers, get their feedback. And I remember just how painful it was to do something like an interview with Dahlia Lithwick, knowing that we would never get to use it, that no one would ever hear it but internally and, and you know, ambitiously edit that interview and then just releasing it to the 50 staffers that would listen but it was it was also like a very fun time because we didn't know the format yet. I think it's sometimes hard to remember how long ago May 2014 was. Like May 2014 was before Gimlet. So I remember Alex oh, Bloomberg wow. coming by the Slate offices kind of like asking us questions about how we were going to do this show and what we thought, how we thought a daily show would work before we launched. I remember this was before Serial. This was kind of before we ever thought we, we were still explaining what a podcast was. And there was still a question of if people would do interviews with us because a podcast was such a new thing and they wouldn't believe we would reach people. I remember like when Mike made the move from NPR that was like a news story. Like that was a serious news story that somebody who was coming over from public radio was going to make a podcast. Like at the time that was considered like a risky gamble. And now it is just like the most common thing. Like there's an entire industry of former public radio people making this stuff. So yeah, it was like, ahead of the game in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think there was even confusion about if the technology would work to deliver a podcast on a daily basis. Um, that's why for the longest time we had a service called Yo, where I would send you a Yo. It was an app that would just send a Yo to people. So if people signed up for our Yo's, I would send them a Yo at the end of yo. the day. Yo! Yo was hot. <laughs> that's amazing. What a, what a capsule of 2014. His first weeks at Slate, I know he was really in a lot of pain because the NPR offices had been so social where he could just kind of run around to everyone's desks and bounce ideas off of them. And the Slate offices, it was a younger crowd and he would kind of go to people's desks to talk to them. They'd kind of take out their headphones and look at him like, 
wait, is something wrong? That's <laughs> yeah, still like, persistent. Like, he would miss his old me, friends dude? a lot. Could you get on Slack, please? Anyway, so I know Mike has a few questions for us. Hi, guys. This is the voice of the Lord. Here are some prompts, maybe, to get the discussion going. What was the moment you thought, wow, this is the job? Pierre, what was the first moment you thought, wow, this is the job while working on the gist? Yeah, so the edit test gave me a, a much different idea than than, uh, than the actual job did, you know, once I, once I started there. I mean, I remember starting really, like, just like hitting the ground running, but... um. I guess it was different when I, yeah, I got to see that script. I got to see how utterly different it is than what any other podcast house might produce, which is, you know, something that's, um, you know, more legible and actual, like, you know. But instead, Mike, you know, listener, you might not know this, but Mike's notes, are, Mike, Mike's scripts are very much kind of like shorthand notes to himself. Yeah, as I like to call them, and this is definitely the first time I was like, oh, this is the job, was getting that script of Mike's the first time. I personally call them um, Mike's version of Finnegan's Wake. Oh, yes, very um, good. In that they are indecipherable until Mike deciphers them for you. I also had the same experience seeing one of his scripts and being like, this is a map that I don't quite have the cartographical skills to understand. <laughs> um, I also think maybe the time that Mike actually tracked an entire show from an airport lounge, that might have been one of them, where it's like, <laughs> Mike's a busy dude, I get this now. Yeah, I mean, I think it was one day where we had, like, two interviews lined up, plus Mike was doing an NPR hit, plus he had to write the whole show, plus we had to, like, write the next day's show because he was going to be away. Like, it is, this show, I mean, I, I hope people who listen to the show every day understand, like, it's a lot of work getting a show out every day, and it's especially a lot of work when you're kind of relying on one guy's brain and, you know, it, it, now it's two producers, but two producers who have to cut down interviews that are like 45 minutes to like 20 minutes or 15 minutes. And there's all these clips that have to be laid in and there's all this sound design that has to happen. Like it's, it's a huge job. Like it is a really great place to actually learn how to make radio. Yeah. Andrea. Yeah. I feel like there were a lot of times in the beginning where I would tell them like, that's too hard. We can't do that. Or I would say like, oh, do we need to put a clip there? And he was always right. Like every time he pushed me to do more in order to make the show right, I would always feel like, oh, he really knows. Um, so <laughs> it was I felt like a, a translator for like I was helping to execute the weird ideas in his head. And they were usually right. They always made a great show. All right. Well, next up, who makes the more pleasant office mate? Ants or frogs? That That's for me. Because <laughs> I don't think anyone else here has ha shared an office with ants or frogs. No. Because you had oh. frogs, right, Andrea? Like you oh, we guys had, were we raising frogs we at both. one point. Yeah. Uh, so we were, we were gifted um, an ant farm at one point. And the amazing thing about an ant farm is that they the ants will die over time. And we got to watch them bury their dead. <gasps> so like one at a time, every time an ant dies, you get to watch them bury their dead until the last one dies and no one's there to bury him. Listeners, please send us another ant wow. farm. This sounds thrilling, but also so sad. So the ant farm was a joy. I loved having an ant farm in our office. The frogs, I never asked for. Uh, Mike was at uh, the last day of his kid's school, and he was like, who's taking home the frogs? And they were like, nobody wants them. We're just going to leave them here all summer and hope they survive. <gasps> and, wow. Uh, that didn't sit right with him. But instead of texting me to say, Andrea, 
do you want frogs? He just grabbed the tank and brought it to work and was like, oh, Andrea, she's responsible. She'll care for these frogs. And the frogs weren't just frogs. They were albino frogs. They were slimy and disgusting. And there were like five of them. It was just the grossest. I can't, I, they were right next to my desk. Um, and guess who fed them? You did. One time I went out of town. No one fed them. I was the only person who ever fed these poor little frogs. Did the frogs did the frogs eat each other at some point, Andrea? <laughs> no. They did survive the summer though. I should have fed them the ants. That would have been a great idea. See, I, I see an alternate version of this frog story where Andrea lets these frogs loose in like like Washington Square Park or something, and then like two years later the frogs own New York City now. Like Ugh. the frogs are the mayor. That would be great. <laughs> I mean, they they were in water, which was the one of the worst parts because there was a smell that I lost the ability to smell because they were right next to my desk. So sometimes someone oh, would come no. into our office and just be like, oh. That's <laughs> and, tragic. And so I, if you ever want to know why I was single that year, I think I have an answer. And it was the frog tank. Um, also, it was there was a bubbler, like an audible bubbler. So if I have my headphones on and I'm trying to find silence and edit the audio to make the gist sound great every day, behind me was a whirring machine <laughs> to keep the frogs alive. Wow. Which makes a better office mate. The answer is ants. Definitely ants. All right. Next up. What was your favorite segment? I know mine, but that's because I'm selfish. And mine was when I made um, Mike sit down with the hosts of The Waves and talk about sexism for 20 minutes. Uh, that was a very exciting conversation. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Mine was probably when we went to the presidential debates. So I think probably the the lowest point in the gist, which we couldn't have avoided, was doing a live show on the night of the 2016 presidential election. Oof. Uh, and having absolutely no plan for what would happen if Trump won because we just couldn't fathom that possibility. And I think our and actually the the panel that came on when it was becoming clear that Trump had won was uh, comedians. What's Donald Trump going to do now? And it was like <laughs> Harry Contabolu <laughs> and like all these guys coming on stage just being like, I don't know. I don't know what life means anymore. <laughs> but the best one was when we actually got to go to the debates because it was such a strange milieu to be in because with the presidential debates, like the journalists are basically just put in a gym somewhere and they just watch it on TV like everybody else. But then afterwards, they like send out all these surrogates to talk to you. So it's all these people who uh, are there representing the campaign and they're going to like spin you on, you know, how their candidate won. And Hillary Clinton surrogates were like Al Gore and like Jesse Jackson and like senators, like serious people. And then Trump's were Omarosa, Bobby Knight, the uh, acclaimed basketball coach. <laughs> And Don King, who I don't know if you remember, but uh, Don King gave an answer to the show where he's uh, to us where he said basically, yeah, I mean, Hillary or Trump could win. They're both great. <laughs> um, I just remember that because like Mike, it like in a night, like went to those and turned around really interesting, insightful conversations with some of these people in like the most artificial, strange environment. And I, it's real impressive. I think that's that's one of my favorites, even though like. We live in the future now and we know how that election turned out. I still look at that as like a really interesting model for how to do like political journalism. My favorite was when we uh, got Mike a singing lesson. Uh, we'd been getting some complaints from listeners <laughs> about Mike singing on the show. So I like I brought in a piano teacher. We had a piano at the office and he taught Mike a little more about singing. That's fantastic. Pierre, do you have one? Yeah, um, so I'm trying to think of specifics. There are every every few months, I mean, so many of the spiels are so good and they're written and, and 
read out with uh, a kicker in mind that's supposed to really land really well. Um, and, and it always does, but every now and then it happens where I'm just like extra blown away, I suppose. And I will always tell Mike that. Now I can't recall exactly what kind of what kind of spiel has done that recently, but um, they they really do every now and then. But I will say one uh, segment that I loved was his interview with Michael Eric Dyson. You know, as that interview was happening, I kind of wrote up uh, the tweet that would go with it, which was that like, hey, we finally found someone who can keep up with Mike Pesca because this guy has pyrotechnic speaking ability. And in fact, Mike's last question to him was about the nature of delivery and, and, and charisma and whether that sometimes obscures the actual meaning of what you're trying to say. And Michael Eric Dyson had a uh, excellent last answer to that that I would encourage you to check out. What do you think the gist did for podcasting? Oh my God, so much. It showed us that daily's possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It proved the daily possible before the daily glut. Yeah. And also it was like one of the first big moves of a famous institutional public media person into podcasting and showed the potential for the form. So in that way, it's uh, a trailblazing show and should be acknowledged as such. And it launched a million other podcasts that I think are so wonderful, mostly at Slate Magazine, you know? Uh, I don't think we'd have Trump cast. I don't think we'd have um, Hit Parade without the gist first. Well, Mary Wilson was luckily able to step away from uh, working on the amazing What Next for a couple of minutes so that she can fill us in on a couple of her opinions about working on the gist. Hey, Mary. Hey, I'm you- sliding a $20 bill across the table to you. Thank you for mentioning such nice things about What Next. <laughs> I will take it. Thank you. <laughs> so I guess first off, what made you want to work on the gist? So I wanted to work on the gist the moment I found out that Pesca was starting a podcast. So before it was named, when he left NPR, Pesca was one of my favorite radio writers. I would like I would stop everything when I heard a story of his on the radio. I remember one time I was working at a podunk station in Pennsylvania and I heard him come on the radio. He was covering a local news story that we were also covering. It was happening in our backyard. And we heard him do the story on it. And I tweeted at him about it. I was like, we were all hooting in the newsroom when we heard you covering our story. And he wrote back to me on Twitter. So I was just like a super fan. I would listen to the sports show he did at The the Gist, but I would only listen to the parts where Pesca was talking. I just loved everything he had to say and everything he wrote. So I was a super fan. Oh, and I knew nothing about sports. I just I, I, I still know nothing about sports, which bothers Pesca, I think, a lot. I think most of us don't. I, I think maybe <laughs> Pierre, but just soccer. So Mike is still stuck with us. <laughs> so, I mean, there's a lot of incandescent personalities in audio right now. But five years ago, it was radio. Radio was the game. Cool. Well, let's get into some of these questions. What was the moment you thought, wow, this is the job? I had a really great first year on The Gist. I don't know if other producers had as good a first year because it was an election year. And Mike wanted to go to some debates. I guess we didn't go to all of them. So we went to debates in Nevada and Long Island. I remember the debates. It's ridiculous. It's like a little journalistic circus town crops up on a university campus. And so there will be... You'll see, like, David Weigel, and you'll see, oh, who's the famous guy from the Times? You know, you'll see all these famous journalists. This sounds like your Coachella. Yeah. You'll see Molly Ball, and she's smoking outside, and she looks so smart and fun. And But I remember just being so exhilarated to be there covering the news with Pesca. I still have a picture on my phone of that night, us walking to go get a taxi back. And 
like uh, like our hair is like wind tossed because we're like walking in the you know late summer air and those were heady days. I remember Chris Berube turning to me in the cab and going like, "Mary, I'm very glad to work with you." It was very sweet. It was Aww. like a really sweet like we're covering the news day on the gist. It That's nice. really cool. I love mm-hmm. it. All right, next up, what is a trick to handle Mike or the gist in general? There was one day Mike forgot to wear regular pants and he came to work in sweatpants, for example. And that was an adorable Mike moment. Like, Mm -hmm. Mike is thinking so many thoughts at once. Sometimes he doesn't have the time to think pants. (laughs) But that made me honestly, like, pretty delighted. Like, I was like, this is a great example of, you know, I remember to put on real pants, but I also don't have that many interesting thoughts in a day. (laughs) This is the difference between you and Mike Pesca. But together we make a pretty good team. So I guess I could spend time being frustrated that, like, he didn't put on real pants. Or I could just remember the fact that, like, we make a good team. I used to tell people when I first came to work on The Gist, I'm there mostly, like, what I do day in and day out is cut audio, but I'm really there to study how Mike Pesca's brain works. And that is pretty much how I approached it. Like, I really wanted to get it. Any any closing thoughts? Mike Pesca's show gets some of the most intelligent listener mail I've ever seen. I haven't worked that many places, but I've been astounded at how caring and um, smart the listener mail is. So it's really heartening that Mike has found this really fantastic audience. And I'm I'm glad to see that they're sticking with him five years strong. It's quite a thing to watch. For sure. And finally, the trait of Mike's I'd like him to change is... I wish Mike was better at talking to people who aren't like Mike. Um, You know, sometimes he does his best interviews with people who match his energy and his love of arguing and his like his energy level. And that that isn't every guest. And usually um, it tends to be a woman who he has a harder time talking to, which is someone who's uh, socialized to be less confrontational and less, you know, maybe who's sick of arguing because those arguments are happening in other spaces all the time and just wants to talk about ideas. So I, Mike's, like, gift with, like, taking on another Mike makes him so good at some interviews, but it, it also limits who I want to book for him sometimes. Chris? Uh, what would I change about Mike? I guess I got to say his socks. Oh, my God. And the interview. We're done. That was perfect. Well, this has been a blast. Thanks for joining us. We're about to head back into editing more of this week's fun fifth anniversary show. Including, uh, this, in- including this interview. Exactly. So uh, thanks for joining us, Andrea. Thanks. Uh, folks can hear me at the show I host. It's called The Longest Shortest Time. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, dudes. See you guys at the Just 10 reunion. Hey, Mike and team, this is Scott in Corvallis, Oregon, and I'm so interested in a time when, Mike, you changed your mind based on, or even during, an interview or conversation that you were having on the podcast. Uh, You recently said in passing that having your mind changed was a great pleasure, and I wonder if you could report about that and then play a little clip for us. That would be super enjoyable. Thanks. Keep it up. Bye-bye. And now the spiel. So for this week, as we look back at five years, I thought it would be a good idea to find arguments that I have made that I now disagree with. It is a great idea in the abstract because I do so love an argument, especially with a foe like myself. In the specific, this actually proved harder 
owing to the fact that either A, I tend to make airtight cases, or B, I refuse to ever change my mind. Actually, that wasn't why I couldn't find many, many arguments where I now say, ooh, I was wrong. It's more about the dynamic of what the spiel is. As I listen back to five years of spiels, I found that spiels aren't most of the time just scathing op-eds on an issue. What I tend to do is think a lot about an issue, but not really where I stand on an issue, just think about the contours of the issue. And I use the spiel as a means to, I suppose you could say, marshalling my best arguments and the most effective rhetoric. So the exercise that is the spiel will less likely be me taking a stance on an issue, the stance itself being bold and different and even the sort of thing that doesn't comport with bedrock values that I have that will really ever change. Most of the energy that goes into a spiel is about argumentation, making the best arguments. Let's talk about some specific things like when I spieled about Amazon being helpful to Queens and the economy of New York City. I'm not going to change my mind on that. When I talked about and how I often would talk about that we shouldn't blame leaders and rotten ideologies for shooters, we should blame guns for the shooters being effective. I believe that. Uh, When I said and how I say over again that competent people doing their jobs will be our salvation as a nation, I mean, that was proved even more solid in the wake of the Mueller report. So again, I did not find a huge body of argumentation that I've done a 180 on, not even really a 145. Another complication is that a lot of my spiels aren't arguments at all. There are flights of fancy or conceits or weird digressions with one uniting detail. They're full of stuff that I think is funny, like this. No matter if they advocate the return of the caliphate or the re-election of Mayor McCheese, I'm Mayor McCheese, and I do not approve this message. That's if Mayor McCheese were like Taft. Mayor McCheese as Taft-like. That is exactly my sense of humor. I think I can prove that it is. There have been a couple of areas where I actually have been consistently wrong. It is good to do this exercise. I never would have realized this. But if I did a scatter plot of the things I was wrong on and topics, you would find a cluster around this area being overly pessimistic on the chances of businesses that were in the moment performing poorly. All right, take this spiel from 2015. There was a new CEO of McDonald's. Chipotle makes people feel good about themselves because Chipotle makes it clear that they only use pigs that have been allowed to walk around a little. And by use pigs, I mean stab them to death. Actually, no, I'm kidding. They electrocute the pigs to death. But anyway, they only murder the happiest pigs. And it gives Chipotle a sheen of do-gooderness. McDonald's needs this. Here's what McDonald's needs to do. McDonald's either needs to introduce a new menu item or, better yet, identify the worst-selling item on the menu and then make an ostentatious announcement McDonald's can no longer serve this item because it cannot procure said item up to its strict ethical and nutritional standards. Now, I just need McDonald's to know because they sometimes screw up these great ideas. Please, I do not want to see a sign that says, due to the lack of ethically slaughtered leprechauns, we will not be offering the Shamrock Shake this year. That is not what I meant. I was wrong. McDonald's didn't have to perform a notable and public rending of garments. All they had to do was get a little more futuristic. They had this kiosk 
that's uh, that people can order in. I've used them in a McDonald's. The experience of the future store prototype, that worked for them. And they had to be a bit more modern in their food, but not in an ostentatious way. I was reading an article on how McDonald's turned it around, and it says, quote, it pledged to invest in better ingredients, including chickens raised without antibiotics and cage-free eggs, and removing corn syrup from hamburger buns and artificial preservatives from chicken McNuggets. So I would call that, a, in general, a mistake. I was pessimistic on McDonald's chances of a turnaround without something huge. I did get some business stories, right? Like I put my finger on this trend. It's time for a new Radio Shack. Radio Shack's problem is actually a little bit radio, a lot of bit shack. No one wants to dwell in a place named after a decrepit dwelling. I looked up the price of dress barn stock, close to a three-year low. It peaked at 24, now it's at 13. Well... I looked again at Dress Barn's parent company, and they have done much worse than I quoted then. Sure, they lost half their value in the quote that I played, but since then, has seen a retail group now trading at about 1.5. Recent headline about Asina. Asina is seeking to divest in its Dress Barn retail chain. Yes, this may be too late. The horse is already out of the barn, but clad in a fashionable A-line dress that really flatters the withers. I got other calls wrong here and there. I was overly dismissive when Bernie Sanders got in the race, May 2015. Bernies are fading away. This might be our last chance at a Bernie in the White House. Alas, voters might regard Bernies as belonging to the past. Are Ted's, are Marco's the future? Who knows? Maybe the future belongs to kids who share names with Bernie's grandchildren. Sonny, Cole, Riley, Grayson, Elitess, and Dylan. Now, did you notice I focused on Bernie's name being Bernie? I, I do this a lot on the show, I realize. Every once in a while, I nail the name trend, like uh, Gary. Can Gary be cool? Yeah, of course Gary could be cool again. Ask Busey, ask W Talent, ask Sinise, ask Gary Hart. So since I said that... Well, at the time that I said that, the name Gary was the 561st favorite name. It has since, in the two years that they have statistics for since, dropped to the 582nd most popular name. And then the last year they have stats for hits, it's now down to 605. Gary, the plummeting, plummeting Garys. The biggest category of call that I missed was because the world changed in an unexpected way. So I said this about Obama's penultimate State of the Union. Because next Tuesday, the president will deliver the State of the Union address. He will be criticized. They will say, even though there haven't been terrorist attacks here, they're around the corner. Or they'll say, even though the budget deficit is the smallest it's been in seven years, it'll get bigger in the future. Or they'll say, even though Obamacare seems popular now, the costs are going to become apparent. Or they'll say, even though Putin seems weak now, he'll surely prove to be every bit the dangerous bear we fear. And Putin back then was a manageable menace. Now he's been inflated to a meandering malefactor. Who do we have to blame? Well, this fellow. I believe this was the first time I mentioned Mr. Trump on the gist. It was in an episode when I was talking about all the dumb undertakings we excuse because it's supposedly for charity. Donald Trump uses it often. The Celebrity Apprentice, that depressing, bottom-dwelling, carnival-like spectacle that trades on the renown or faded infamy of the Botox and the beleaguered, is for charity. And Trump often ups the charity offering in proportion to the unlikeliness and unseemliness of his enterprise. To wit, 
if Barack Obama opens up and gives his college records and applications, and if he gives his passport applications and records, I will give to a charity of his choice, inner city children in Chicago, American Cancer Society, AIDS research, anything he wants, a check immediately for $5 million. So on that specific episode, you could say I was wrong because while I was correct to criticize Trump for making such a specious charge against Obama, maybe I could have focused on the fact that that promise of $5 million, that was almost certainly bullshit, knowing what we know now, which gets us to knowing what we know now, the area where I would most argue with myself, Trump, Trump's chances of getting elected. So you may know that I had a recurring segment called the Trump Anxiety Hotline, and I talked about Trump a lot. I criticized during the race, during the primary, during the general. I did criticize the media for being too dismissive of Trump, but I never really took his threat as likely. I thought, in fact, that it would be a good opportunity for Republicans to re-examine their ways. And I also said, I found this old clip of a show, uh, that Hillary Clinton is now emboldened to go with big policy swings and not be hemmed in by being a centrist. Uh, and I even said, I mean, hell, she could pick as a running mate. This is in 2015. I said she could pick as a running mate someone like Elizabeth Warren. I was wrong about Trump. Or maybe I was right. Maybe I was perfectly exactly right. And I'll explain why. In one of those, I think it was the last Trump anxiety hotline, the last one before the election, I compared the work that we were doing to an Ebola expert or a Zika expert. And I said it would be irresponsible to tell anyone, hey, you're not getting Zika. Don't worry about Ebola. I wasn't saying that. But I also thought it would be equally irresponsible to give in to the idea that you will be getting Zika or Ebola. I put Trump's chances of losing in that segment as 70%. So I was wrong. Or maybe I wasn't. Maybe it's just that the 30% shot came in. They do sometimes, 30% of the time. I do, to this day, get critics on Twitter saying, why should we listen to you, the guy who told us Trump wouldn't be president? Okay, then, well, I guess your media diet is down to Michael Moore, the guy who draws Dilbert. But I was on the wrong side of that bet and a few others, like, say, not shorting Dress Barn. You know, in the last five years, we've all probably made a few mistakes. Luckily enough for me, I have a daily record to check against. Unluckily, the most glaring personal whiffs are about the man who provides most of the fuel for this rocket ship every day. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, and of course, producer emeriti Andrea Salenzi, Chris Barube and Mary Wilson. TJ Raphael is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She is the originator of the role, and as such, she can only convene a one-woman, let's not even say roundtable, maybe a breakfast nook. The gist goading me. The gist goading you into bringing charges. Goading. Full-on goad. Oomperu depru duperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs> 